0: Hello and welcome to the I3 podcast. My name is Walter Klein and I'm the director of content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3 This podcast was sponsored by Janus Henderson Investors. As such, the sponsor may make suggestions for discussion, but final control remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Jay Siva-Palen, who is the Head of Australian Fixed Interest at Janus Henderson Investors. And today we're going to talk about the 2023 Australian Insurance Report, a survey of Australian insurers and their thoughts about their investment portfolios, how their investment outlook might change, and what the changes they are considering in the next 12 to 24 months.
1: Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you, Walter. It's very good to be here, and um, certainly an exciting time and an important time to be having these discussions, specifically for insurers in Australia.
0: Yeah, so can you tell me a little bit of the background of this survey? Um, I, I don't think this was the first year that this has being held. This uh, has a bit of a tradition, and it covers a wide range of insurers.
1: Yes, we conducted this research um, with over 25 insurance firms here in Australia back in July and August of this year. And our aim really was to gorge the sentiment amongst Australian insurers, how they're thinking about their investment portfolios, how their investment outlook might be evolving and what changes they're really considering over the next one to two years. And to the best of our knowledge, it's really the first solely Australian focus survey designed to understand what insurance here are thinking in terms of their investments. Uh, And we had, you know, really good participation uh, across the industry. So the participating firms represented a broad range of Australian insurers, whether it be life uh, general insurers, health insurers, as well as other, uh, not for profit or other insurers as well. And the responses were really from those most senior leaders in the insurance industry. Um, you know, sharing their insights with us with, you know, one in two respondents, uh, who were C-suit executives. So CEOs, chief investment officers and CFOs. Uh, and as you're probably aware, the insurance segment is a core part of what we do here. In Australia at Janice Henderson. And we've got some in-house actuarially trained investment personnel within our fixed interest team and also solution specialists who've spent most of their careers in insurance here in Australia.
0: And I think one of the interesting parts, uh, one of the conclusions of the report was that nine out of 10 insurers are revisiting their SAA. Is that purely a product of the increased interest rates or what is driving that?
1: Yeah, I think if you take a step back uh, and really look at the global investment landscape today compared to the decade leading up to the pandemic, and of course, that period during the pandemic, it has fundamentally changed both from a structural perspective, as well as um, to your point from a valuation and perspective in terms of risk free assets and bond yields. So on the structural side, you know, we all know that, you know, the, the, the world is going through quite a different period in terms of the reversal of globalisation, the big climate adaptation and the costs of those climate adaptation, uh, and then, of course, the geopolitics that we've been seeing more recently. So it's quite a different environment to, um, I would suggest, that period in particular from the GFC to the pandemic and, again, different to the period leading up to the GFC. So the macroeconomic environment has really led to 9 out of 10 insurers revisiting their strategic asset allocation. And half have already undertaken this review and the remainder are in progress or intend to do so over the coming year. And the top three concerns for insurers we found uh, and what was leading them to reviewing their investment strategy were rising uh, interest rates and risk-free rates. Of course, uh, that is very closely tied in with inflation. And then the changing forward-looking expectations that I mentioned. And all of these have different impacts for each asset class, whether it's investment grade credit or higher risk segments like equities, property, infrastructure, and then the private side of things.
0: And I think um, a lot of insurers already indicated some of the changes that they potentially might be making. Um, What are some of the asset classes that they're looking at?
1: Yeah, this is where the data gets really interesting. Across the board, we saw one in three or 37% actually of insurers looking to add risk to their investment portfolios. Uh, But that number rose quite a bit more, almost half of all life insurers of 47% looking to add risk in one way, shape or form. Um, Insurers do continue to expect that their largest increase in allocation to be to domestic government bonds. uh, And that is a function of two things. Firstly, a sharper focus on asset liability management and matching, and so that's about 34% of the respondents. Uh, but secondly, to your earlier point, government bonds today at yields you know, not far off, or very close to 5%, is a very viable return alternative as well to other assets. Private debt uh, is a second component, um, remains to be uh, in vogue uh, and in favour in terms of looking at solutions to add into insurance portfolios. And then of course Australian investment grade corporate credit. About 29% of respondents um, shared that they'd like to increase their exposure to uh, that segment. And probably the one area that remains quite polarized in terms of intentions is cash. Good old cash. Now cash as we know these days is no longer worthless. Um, it, it does provide a pretty good hurdle or benchmark for every other asset class from there. And so we're seeing an increase in allocation to cash, about a quarter of respondents there, and a very similar number looking to decrease their allocation to cash um, pursuing other assets uh, like the ones that I mentioned.
0: Did that finding surprise you that they're taking on a little bit more risk? Because, you know, you would think with uh, bond yields being higher today and, and sort of an outlook of more volatility and potentially lower equity returns, you would think that maybe this is a time to go a bit more defensive and add a few more bonds.
1: Yeah, and I think it really depends on where these insurers are in their own evolution. Um, As we know, the life insurance space with long tail risks, got a well embedded asset liability management program. And they have gone through that journey of ultra low cash rates, ultra low bond yields and coming out on the other side. And so many of them have already taken on you know, private debt and other alternative infrastructure, et cetera. Some are still in train in adding some of those exposures. But then you look at other segments uh, like health insurance, who are moving into the logic framework, APRA's um, logic framework, and perhaps are looking to de-risk uh, in particular the capital impost from their existing um, portfolios that may not have been that capital efficient uh, and really now focusing on you know, the cost of that capital and then what are the most efficient return on capital that you can get.
0: Yeah. So you see that they are now subject to uh, the, the capital risk charge. Um, so that has led to a bit more conservative uh, in their portfolio.
1: Yeah, I'd say that um, most health insurers uh, who will be moving on to the logic framework, uh, they have either started their work looking at their portfolios, working with, in the case of um asset consultants working through with the asset consultants and so on. Some are starting to make that transition, but I think the real transition will come over the next 12 to 24 months.
0: Yeah. Now, one of the asset classes that uh, a lot of insurers look to allocate more to was unlisted infrastructure. What is sort of driving that? Is that that they were on the way in that sector or is that more the outlook for the asset class itself?
1: Yeah, depending on the type of insurance company and also their ownership structure, Insurers, historically and globally, do have the ability to take quite a longer-term view. Uh, And also, especially when you're talking about long-tail risks, uh, they do have the ability to take liquidity risk as well. And so assets like infrastructure, which are long-tail, less liquid, but if there's a return to be had, that might be quite an attractive area. And, And I think that's one of the reasons why Some insurers are looking and extending into that area. Um, It is a bit more capital intensive under the logic framework. So uh, insurers have to effectively balance that versus the return improvement. But uh, I think the assessments that we've seen from some of the insurance companies is that they do have a marginal preference for that versus broader equity market beta and all the volatility that goes with uh, equity markets. The other thing also is that it can be a proxy or a dirty proxy for as an inflation hedge, especially if the liabilities have some form of inflation uh, that can't be easily replicated in an inflation-linked type portfolio. Uh, and then something else else that came out of the survey is that insurers really do have a focus on capital and profit volatility. And so when you're talking about public market assets whether it's growth assets like equity, listed property, et cetera, infrastructure may be a little bit less volatile, both on the profit side as well as the capital side.
0: Before we saw sort of the rates rising, there were a lot of insurance companies that were looking for bond replacements. And and some of them moved to a bit more of a, an exposure to alternatives. Could we partly see that as a driver as well for this allocation to unlisted infrastructure, or or is that a separate issue?
1: Yes, yeah, certainly the experience of, in particular, the last three years, leading up to the rise in bond yields of more uh, recent times, but I, I would even argue that period from about two thousand and fifteen to two thousand and nineteen, when you know Europe and other central banks were still experimenting with zero percent cash rates, negative bond yields, and so on, um, you know it was. It was a really difficult time for insurers to get decent returns from their risk-free or lower risk, you know, fixed income type assets. And so you needed to chase returns from other sectors, and it was pulling a few levers. It was pulling the illiquidity lever, it was pulling the credit lever, and it was pulling other infrastructure alternate asset type lever. They were the three levers that insurers were typically pulling. Today, um, I wouldn't say that insurers are spoiled for choice, but they certainly have a lot more choice now that bond yields have more or less normalised, um, whatever normal looks like these days. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I think the the, the hurdle or the uh, the benchmark to pursue those other illiquidity or more complex or alternate asset classes is higher today. And insurance will go through that, you know, process of certainty, capital volatility, and profit volatility versus taking on those additional risks going forward.
0: We're still in a very volatile environment. And um, earlier this year, there was still a lot of talk about a recession. I think uh, there's less talk today about uh, a hard landing. But you asked as well the insurers what their thoughts were around a recession. And it seemed that life insurance were the most concerned out of all of insurers about uh, an upcoming recession. Why do you think that is?
1: Yeah so when you look at the typical balance sheet in particular the technical reserves of a life insurer they tend to have a beta bias and typically a credit beta bias in some case uh, it also includes asset backed securities which are a bit more consumer cyclically exposed you know housing related rmbs and so on and so uh, the survey i think to us um, demonstrated that that is a heightened level of sensitivity towards the tail end of an economic cycle. Now, it's hard to tell whether we're we're at the end of an economic cycle or approaching it, but I think we can all agree that we're more progressed through the economic cycle. And so credit beta is something that is very relevant for insurers to think about, in particular long-tail life-like insurance companies. But there are also some solutions around it. uh, And we've certainly been working with some of our um, insurance clients around tail risk hedging, uh, if it's proxy hedges and so on, using the CDS markets, um, looking at options markets and so on, and really to manage that tail risk rather than necessarily divest out of that area because insurance still need to make uh, a good return above and beyond their liabilities.
0: Yeah, so can you do that tail risk uh, hatching without sort of blowing out the costs for managing that uh, tail risk?
1: Yeah, so like everything uh, in, in life, you want to be buying protection when no one else wants it. And, of course, the more volatile a world, a world looks, everyone wants um, protection. Um, what we have found uh, is that we have been able to do a few things. So the first one is within the credit parts of insurer portfolios, you can certainly skew the portfolio more to the defensive, non-cyclical, non-housing related sectors. And so that's, that's to us step one. Uh, step two is that for much of this year, uh, the calendar year 2023, physical credit spreads have remained more elevated than CDS credit spreads. And so it, it's been a, we, we wouldn't say, um, Credit protection has been cheap, but it's certainly been less costly and has made sense to pursue good corporate credit spreads and then offset that with some level of CDS protection. And that is something that we've been um, doing for insurance um, clients. In, on the other side, um, duration and duration mismatches, in particular long duration, now that fixed interest has become more of a defensive asset class. With um, yields having risen, that's another area that, if insurers are comfortable, worthwhile taking on as a proxy hedge for credit beta.
0: Yeah. Now we started uh, talking a little bit about the reviews of the strategic asset allocation, and of course that ties in with you know what what the actual objective is that uh, insurance investment teams have, because it can be quite different than say a superannuation fund or another institutional investor, and I think the report outlines three three main objectives, regulatory capital stability, return seeking, or minimizing profit volatility. Is there a sort of a correlation between any of these three objectives and the type of insurer they are, like life or health or general?
1: Yeah, so probably the first place to start is what is the nature of the insurance business? What is the ownership structure? So if I start with the ownership structure, where you've got listed insurers, um, clearly they're much more sensitive to share price and share price movements versus you know subsidiary of a global insurer where they're a lot more interested in repatriating dividends or and/or capital back to the parent um, all the way through to the not-for-profit and/or government you know segments. So that definitely plays into how much profit volatility an insurer is willing to absorb in terms of their strategic asset allocation especially in a risk off type environment or or a stress testing that they would undergo on the regulatory side that's almost a non negotiable for most insurers the last discussion that any insurer wants to be having is with uh, apra uh, around you know an inability to have sufficient capital around their assets so the regulatory side is more around the buffer against a minimum amount of capital, and then how to make that capital as efficient as possible and make the technical reserves as efficient as possible. And so we spent a considerable amount of time effectively building portfolios for insurers, marrying the logic capital requirements with the return outcomes, and then stress testing those for adverse scenarios and just proving out that even under adverse scenarios, the likelihood of having a very difficult conversation with the regulator is quite low. And, and that's, and that's really key. And then the last part, you know, around return seeking, um, again, there, um, if you're a, you know, long tail, you know, insurer, depending on your product line, uh, whether it's life insurance or TPD or something like that, or workers compensation, clearly you've got an ability to take some risk to enhance returns over a very long period of time. Whereas if you're in the general and or health space, uh, as one example, or, or, you know, specialist insurers like medical insurance and so on, or professional indemnity insurance, there you focus a lot more on the liquidity side. You have to have, and you have this regular claims experience coming through every year. And you have a bit more volatility in the claims experience coming through that you've got to be really ready for with your investment portfolio so quite different considerations um, both the type of insurer the ownership structure the product line and then of course market conditions themselves can change but certainly the returns going forward and from here now that the whole risk curve is lifted it's become a bit easier uh, for insurers
0: yeah so with the uh, the the risk free rates uh, being now higher does that also mean that the forward looking returns are are adjusted for insurers?
1: Yeah, we certainly think so. So if you sort of boil it down to the basics, you know, the risk free rates are ultimately what's used to discount liabilities for insurers, uh, in particular if you're um, well matched. And if we just sort of touch on short tail insurers, you know, previously You had short-tail insurers, liabilities, discounted by those risk-free rates, but the assets that you were purchasing on the other side, you really needed to take some alternate risks, whether it's lower credit quality or structured risk, for example, moving into securitized products or otherwise, or take some form of equity beta or some other beta or alternate risk to get a decent return. I mean, today you can quite comfortably build a a asset portfolio that has a decent margin above the liability yield to maturity. And that margin is your profit buffer. Of course, that can be volatile in itself, but it's a more comfortable profit buffer. And both domestically and globally, we are finding that insurance companies in their investment portfolios have a healthier margin to work with. That's not to say that year to year it couldn't be up and down, but certainly a healthier margin to work with than they did through the last, um, you know, three or four years.
0: And that's one other unique thing of I think uh, insurance investors—they always have to start with their liabilities uh, um, uh, rather than sort of the the risk-free rate or or just the return. But um, I think when interest rates were really low, we we did see that some insurers. They moved away from like a really strict liability matching to a little bit more of a, a, an absolute return or a, a liability conscious approach. And in the survey, it, it showed that the majority is still uh, more in the camp of liability conscious rather than, than matching. Do you think that's still a hangover of that period or is that reflecting of the changes in investment approaches over time?
1: Yeah, it's a combination of both and it's a really good question it really depends on the nature of the insurer and the nature of the liabilities and the product lines. So, if you've got a long tail set of liabilities uh, under APRA's logic standards, uh, it's quite punitive not to be matched at least at a crude level. Uh, and the more you can be matched, and then take deliberate mismatches, whether it's on credit risk charge, or um, you know interest rate risk charge, or inflation risk charge it becomes punitive and so the best outcomes that we see both in the past and also going forward uh, is investment portfolios that are quite well matched nice and tidy and then taking intended mismatches where the return on capital is very attractive and efficient Short tail um, liabilities on the other hand think health insurers you know uh, I mentioned before business insurance professional indemnity general insurers for example they have, Uh, being much more of uh, what you just described as, you know, liability conscious and they've moved more and more to building portfolios that are absolute return or total return in nature with sufficient buffer to meet their claims and then just having the appropriate liquidity requirements to meet the claims. And that's because the logic capital impost isn't as big if you're less mismatched. Now, as I touched on earlier, for health insurers who've had more the equity risk beta, that's where they're probably recognising now that the capital impost is too high. And so what we're likely to see going forward is not perhaps a full liability matching at the short tail end, but certainly a move to becoming much more liability conscious towards liability match. And then using fixed income and credit and investment-grade credit in a heavier way At the expense of equities and other alternate assets?
0: The liability question is it affects the long-term investment horizon of insurers sometimes. Um, And I was thinking particularly about the example where sometimes, you know, in in periods of financial stress, insurers tend to sell their growth assets and they they basically play it safe. And so they're kind of counter-cyclical in that sense where you think like, well, that's that's the time where you don't want to Crystallize your losses, right? But for an insurance, it's not always that straightforward. That's that, that's right, isn't it?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you're a traditional long-term investor, whether it's in pension or a personal investor, you, you can ride out cycles and go through cycles. But the whole capital framework for insurers and to some extent banks, but let's focus on insurance today, essentially means that the the more downside volatility you experience in your asset portfolio the more you're forced to de-risk the portfolio at, like you said, the absolute worst time uh, when, when you really want to be re-risking your portfolio. And the only way to do that is to apply other either shareholder capital or government capital into the balance sheets of insurers, which is very hard to do uh, from a pure investment perspective. Um, certainly it happens, and we've seen that happen, you know, um, you know, not long ago in Australia, you know, Challenger raised equity at a time when their asset-backed security portfolio uh, was being remarked downwards and so on. So we do definitely see these examples in publicly listed companies, but much harder to do if you're a subsidiary or a local branch of a foreign insurer and or a government insurer and the like.
0: Let's touch briefly on uh, ESG considerations, uh, environmental, social and governance issues. The survey found that most of the insurers or a lot of them are implementing these considerations in their portfolios now. But what I found interesting is that life insurers tend to do less of that than general insurers. While when you look at sort of the time horizon that they have, you would think life insurers would be more aware of sort of these long trend, long horizon uh, issues. What, what, what do you make of that?
1: Yeah, I suppose for insurers, the considerations around ESG is threefold. Um, firstly, it's directly on their operations and the impact on their policies. So, uh, you know, clearly, flooding and or bushfires or hail damage to you know motor vehicles is a much more direct claims impact. And and so taking that into account, uh, so for example, some insurers are very good at um, identifying postcode by postcode, you know, flood uh, risks. Um, fire risks, hazards, uh, even hail risks, etc. Um, so, that, so, so, so that's, you know, partly why you generally find that general insurance tend to be more focused in that particular area. The second part is on the impact of the performance of their assets, whether it's technical reserves or shareholder assets. Uh, and that's, that tends to be a little bit more longer term in nature. So if you're not buying very long term assets, you know, um, that can take a little bit longer to play out. So let me give you an example. If you buy today some coal infrastructure, whether it's a railway to a coal mining or a terminal, uh, what you're really dealing with there is stranded asset risk in 10 or 20 year or 30 years time. You're not really dealing with any major risks from a year one or year two perspective, so it requires a much longer, you know, time horizon. What is more um, obvious in investment portfolios uh, is what we would call, you know, social license to operate. So think about, uh, you know, gaming uh, license operators or tobacco um, distributors or uh, you know companies like that. Uh, and so what we're seeing is that insurers are starting to become quite engaged on their asset portfolios uh, and to give you a couple of examples you know we've implemented on behalf of our insurance clients over the last three or four years tobacco free portfolios and signatories to that the second one is around you know looking at carbon reduction in their portfolio and carbon intensity reduction and not necessarily 2050 type targets but interim targets so one example uh, if I can share with you is 2019 as a base level, and then a target by X percent by 2025. Uh, so that's an example of that carbon transition pathway. And then further than that, we're certainly engaging with our insurance clients on, you know, aspects like plastic packaging, you know, diversity of the employees of, you know, the companies that they invest in, and so on. So they're certainly becoming more attuned. I guess the main difference between a wealth management or superannuation investor versus an insurer is that the wealth manager or superannuation, it is the member's money and they're really trying to showcase that they're thinking about the member. In fact, through the surveys that they're conducting with their members, the members are saying, hey, I want my capital to do well but also do good. Whereas on the insurance side, it is at the corporate level and it's it's the company's balance sheet that's being invested as opposed to members the it's more the policy holders are different to the you know the owner of the assets
0: yeah 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 different situation another thing that uh, is is uh, popular these days is uh, artificial intelligence and and how that can be applied and the survey found that no less than 74% of respondents would start a trial for artificial intelligence in the investment management function over the next 12 months
1: that sounds very high yes um you know artificial intelligence is a fancy word for really the further adaptation of technology to undertake our processes so you know everyone thinks about you know artificial intelligence does that mean these computers or robots are running insurers going forward Maybe the case in a long time from now, but the immediate application is really around processes. Uh, so whether it's you know claims, experience, uh, underwriting, etc., can we use script and data to get better at that? Um, can we run processes quicker, you know, using artificial intelligence or effectively some form of computing support? I'll give you a very quick example. From a you know investor perspective and you know managing portfolios as an example. Like many organizations, there are many compliance rules and compliance documents to check before you undertake a particular investment. Now, using a very good technology script, you can actually place a trade that you're intending to make and then very quickly check 80 plus documents to make sure that you are within uh guidelines and within the right to place that trade using, you know, technology, which a decade ago, you would have one person reading through these, checking with a compliance department and so on. So, you know, artificial intelligence, fancy word, but it's here to stay and it's going to really enable all these institutions, including insurers, to both operate better, more efficiently, more leanly, and also reduce costs. Uh, when it comes to both the underwriting side, the claims side, as well as the asset portfolio or investment portfolio side.
0: Yeah. So I read a report from, I think it was last month, where they used Chet GPT 4 and 3.5 or 3.5 um, to basically invest uh, in stocks using sort of sentiment analysis and they found that it worked pretty reasonable compared to sort of earlier iterations that's not really what insurance are looking at though is it
1: uh, look i wouldn't have thought so uh, in the first instance um, where where it can be quite useful is for example assisting with and i do emphasize the word assisting with as opposed to replacing humans uh in terms of you know credit analysis data gathering information gathering and so on there's definitely a strong case to be made to gather data very quickly. And of course, as you know, um, you know, software like ChatGPT and many others, um, they are basically gathering information that's publicly available on the web or other sources. Uh, And what insurers have is an incredible amount of data, actuarial data, claims experience data, uh, and of course, the investment departments and or fund managers like us who manage money on behalf of insurers, have an enormous amount of market-related data, whether it's credit spreads, defaults, um, interest rates, um, swaps, uh, and and so on. So, to gather and manipulate and use this data for decision making, uh, if it can be done in an efficient way, uh, that will certainly help the the, the whole process. Yeah,
0: do you, you use AI in your own area in fixed income investing?
1: We are certainly exploring how we can uh, enable. Some of our analysis and data gathering and, 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 and really the, I guess the, the, the broader extension of analytical frameworks for, you know, investment decision making. Uh, We have models that we use. We have risk systems that we use and we have some automated process that assist with that. Um, I wouldn't call it necessarily AI. Uh, Let's call it AI 0.1 and (laughs) we'll see if we can um, head towards AI 1.0. Fair enough.
0: So, Jay, what, what is Janice Henderson's experience working with uh, insurance clients? We just discussed that there's quite a few differences. Uh, how, do you, how do you look at that?
1: Yeah, here in um, Australia, Wota, um, Janice Henderson's got significant experience in managing insurance-related um, products and portfolios across life, health, general reinsurers. And today we manage about $11 billion of insurance-related assets. Uh, and that number is about $86 billion that we're managing globally on behalf of insurers. Um, we do understand that, you know, managing assets for insurers requires quite a different level of understanding of a, the unique position of each insurer, its ownership, uh, structure, the types of products it offers, uh, and then also the liability structure. So it's definitely not a one size fits all approach. Uh, and then undertaking active management can really assist with you know, enhancing profit for uh, insurers.
0: And, and finally, uh, do you have any sort of comments or things that you would like to add about the survey?
1: Yes, I mean, I think the most important thing for insurers is that the economic, global and market landscape has shifted quite considerably. And so the playbook of the last three, four, five or even the 10-year period uh, of the past is probably not what's going to suit insurers best. We do also have a few things occurring uh, locally here in terms of health insurers moving on to LAGIC. And so focusing on the marriage of investment market returns on a forward-looking basis with APRA's LAGIC standards and other regulatory requirements, liquidity requirements and so on, and then building custom solutions that really fit neatly with that Uh, will probably drive strategic asset allocation and also the types of portfolios that insurance will have going forward.
0: Yeah, excellent. Well, Jay, thank you very much for your time. It was a very interesting discussion.
1: Thanks, Wouter. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the i3 Podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com.